All right, so as you guys can see on your sheet this morning, uh, the 10th character quality we want to talk about this morning for a little bit that, again, I think is really foundational to us doing exactly what we talked about as far as building a stable and inspired course as men is this area of humility and really understanding the importance of developing humility. And I think I would venture to say as well, maintaining humility in our nature or being humble. And if you look from a definition standpoint, and I think it really helps uh, particularly in this area of humility or what it means to be humble, because I think a lot of times we have a kind of a false idea of what it means to be humble or what humility is. And from a, a definition standpoint, humility is defined as a modest or low view of one's importance. And let me read that again and emphasize the, the word that's key there, a modest or low view of one's importance. So it's, it's not a low view of yourself. You know, sometimes I think people have kind of like this self-deprecating, false humility where they're always putting themselves down. I used to have one of my daughters when she was growing up when she was little, and she kind of had this tendency to always want to put herself down, and you started realizing that was basically just so much like somebody would give her a pick-me-up. In other words, she always wanted to put herself down in front of everybody to kind of almost like fish for a compliment. You ever notice maybe you've done that or maybe you know someone who does that? It's almost like they're always kind of saying something in a self-deprecating way or putting themselves down. Oh, I'm not good at this. I'm so ugly. And what they really want is, oh, no, you're not ugly. You're beautiful, man. Or, and, and it's kind of like that's not humility, right? Humility is not fishing for compliments or trying to get other people. Humility is basically a low view of your own importance. So it's not thinking about yourself in some way that you're better than other people. It's not emphasizing your own importance in any way. And oftentimes humility is displayed in how we act among others and treat others. So it's it's not a mindset of, as we're talking about, it's not a mindset of self-criticism where basically you're in some way, I guess you might say, thinking less about yourself. The idea is not thinking less about yourself. It's actually thinking about yourself less. That makes sense? So it's not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself a whole lot less. The idea is you don't focus on yourself. You don't fixate on yourself. You're not always making yourself the center of attention. Uh, you don't see yourself as superior or as significant. You see yourself on level ground, and you just see yourself like everybody else. That's the idea, is that you just recognize I am just as common and normal as everybody else, no matter who I am or what I've done or what I've accomplished or who I'm with. I'm not better than others. I'm not superior or more significant, important than others. It's the freedom from an attitude of pride or that arrogant spirit that then treats other people like they're inferior. I found this uh, quote here from, from T.S. Eliot. I, I just thought it was fantastic when I, when I read it, so I put it in your, your notes there. It should be quoted in there. Humility is the most difficult of all virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of oneself. I thought, man, that's, that's really good. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of yourself. So the word humble is basically the adjective that we use or the verb we describe when we're talking about the condition of humility. And then, of course, pride or being proud is the opposite of that. And the reason that humility is so important is because it actually protects us against the danger of pride. So the main reason why establishing and maintaining humility in our spirit 
is so essential is because it's what safeguards us against the very destructive thing that we all know as is pride. In fact, the first time the word humble shows up in scripture, it pictures the very problem that we all have with human pride. And I bring this to your attention, just kind of a sidelight for a minute. There's one of the ways in which you can study the word of God is this idea of what we call the subject of or the law of first mention. And what that means from a biblical perspective when you're studying the Bible is whenever the first time a word or a concept appears in the word of God, it usually sets the tone in the best way for how it should be interpreted all the way through the rest of scripture. So the first time a word shows up in the Bible, it's very important to take note of it and the context and how and why it shows up. And the first time the word humble shows up in the Bible, it's a clear reflection of the major problem we have with human pride. It's in Exodus 10, 13. I put it in your notes there. Can one of you guys read that one for us out loud? The first Bible verse there, Exodus 10, thir- or 3, I'm sorry. Yeah, Go for it. Thus says the Lord God to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself Right. So take notice. What is the Lord saying there to Pharaoh that he's refusing? Notice, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So he says the problem there is that by nature, both Pharaoh and all of us, for that matter, we are grossly proud by default. We don't have to work at being proud. We don't have to work with you know being arrogant or anything like that. By default, we just all tend to struggle with that. And as a result, because we're proud by nature, we tend to do things like act like we're entitled to certain things. And pride makes us behave in a way where we think we deserve to act in a certain way. Oftentimes when we justify our behaviors, that's because of our own pride And here, God tries to challenge us and challenge Pharaoh to stop thinking that he's so special, particularly before the presence of God. So he says to Pharaoh here, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Even if Pharaoh thought he was a hotshot because he was the greatest over the empire of all Egypt, God says, look, at the end of the day before me, you're not a hotshot. You're basically a little tiny grasshopper in comparison to the awesome presence of of God who is king of kings and creator and God who is truly the most important one. God's saying to Pharaoh here, look, Pharaoh, what is it going to take for you to dethrone yourself and not think you're so important, so special and so superior? Now, again, I think until you come to a place where you estimate or evaluate yourself in the presence of God, you're going to struggle with pride your whole life long. Because you can always find a way to think you're better than somebody else around you, right? I mean, there's always a way to, well, I'm cooler than that person, or I'm better looking than that guy, or I'm stronger than this guy, or I'm a better athlete than him, or I'm smarter than him. And we can always find a way to put someone else down to make ourselves feel better. And so it's almost until we come into a place where we estimate ourselves in the presence of God and how awesome God is that we really can begin to find a path towards humility, that I'm not really so important. Life's not about me. I'm just a common, equal human being to everyone else around me. And the reason this is so important is the downfall, think about this with me, the downfall of the devil was allowing himself basically to let pride take over his heart. You know, the Bible teaches us that scripturally, The devil in his creation initially was a high-ranking angelic being. 
So the devil at one point in time, when he was originally created, was this awesome, powerful, high-ranking cherub. It tells us in the book of Ezekiel, it seems he had musical abilities. Some say maybe he was the worship leader of the heavenly realm. We don't know that for certain, but he clearly had a very high-ranking position among all the angelic beings, but somehow allowed pride to pollute his heart, to begin to misguide his thinking, and to take over control of him, because in the description of the fall of de the devil, from being this high-ranking holy angel to a fallen, corrupted, demonic spirit, he's saying again and again, I will, I will, I will, I'll be like the Most High. And, and what he's doing is he's wanting a degree of importance. He's wanting to make himself more than what he is. And as he exalted himself, it led to his horrible downfall and a self-destructive path. And really a wasted opportunity that God had given him as one of the angels. And it's interesting, if you look in your notes there, I put the next verse in there, 1 Timothy 3, 6. It warns us of being, notice, puffed up with pride and falling into the same condemnation as the devil. So God uses the illustration of the devil being lifted up in pride and leading to his horrible corruption and downfall as this beautiful, pure, angelic being. And then the Bible says, look, be careful. Don't let yourself become puffed up with that same uh, you know, struggle of pride where you fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And the reason why that is important is because the word of God does teach to us. In fact, it was Jesus who talked about it, that when we're initially born, we're not born initially as children of God. Now, for some people, that's a that's a real mental struggle. But Jesus himself, when he was talking to the religious leaders, in fact, who were very religious in their activities, he said, the reason why you reject me and behave the way you behave is because you're doing the works of your father, the devil. So Jesus basically said to the religious leaders, you imagine in that day, that'd be like Jesus, you know, speaking to a group of, you know, you know, pastors or, or religious leaders today and saying, your father is the devil. And what he was conveying to them is your spiritual condition, the origin of your life right now, because it hasn't been converted inside spiritually, is the same as in which you were born in. The Bible says that we're born sinful from nature. And so until we are born spiritually and God becomes our father and we become what the Bible teaches, a child of God legitimately, until that time, there's only other one other spiritual father that our, our origin internally can be from. And so Jesus describes that very reality. You know, the Bible does teach that we're all created by God. We don't dispute that. Every person's life has been created by God, given to them by God. But at a certain point, you become a child of God when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and your dead, sinful, unregenerate heart comes alive spiritually. And it's at that moment you then become what the Bible calls a child of God, where you then relate to God as your father in a spiritual sense and you have a true spiritual life because the spirit of God's entered inside of you. So I say that because when he warns here of not falling into the same condemnation of the devil, it's a reminder to us our sinful nature automatically is going to make us inclined towards behaving like the devil. My natural human nature, what we call our Adamic nature, the idea is from Adam, what we get when we're born, is going to be inclined towards doing what's wrong and not towards doing what's right. And so it's important for me to remember my sinful nature is always going to be inclined not towards humility, but towards pride. 
That's what I'm naturally going to struggle with, and it's always going to be a battle to overcome as I yield to the new nature of Jesus and his spirit within me. And, and pride, the way I look at pride, you know, one man said before, and I, I've loved this statement, he said, pride is like the mother of all sins. And, and if you think about that, like pride is what gives birth to all the other sinful things that we do. It's kind of like the womb that causes us to behave in all the other wrong ways that we do. Or pride, you might say, is kind of like, a, like it's like a cancer within us that produces all these horrible symptoms that we look at and end up struggling with as men in our lives. It kind of gradually erodes us, and pride creates a lot of horrible habits in my life if I don't put it to death. It creates character flaws and attitudes that aren't good, and it sets us up for a major fall with really destructive consequences. And God doesn't want that for us. In fact, God tells us where it will lead to ultimately. Somebody, can you read for me Proverbs 16, 18, our next verse there? This is a very popular verse in regards to this subject. Can somebody read that one out loud? 16, 18? Uh, pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before the fall. Right. So notice God just tells us point blank there. Notice those two words, destruction and fall. And God says, before destruction comes into a human life, before a person falls flat on their face, he says, you can always trade it back, trace it back to pride. You can always link it back. So God says, if I allow myself to start to become proud, I let arrogancy begin to be a part of my attitude and I'm lacking humility and I'm living in pride. I am heading down a pathway towards falling flat on my face as a person and ending up bringing destructive things into my life. Again, if you think of the analogy of I just said a minute ago, it was a lack of humility that turned the devil into this high-ranking angel. It turned the devil from a high-ranking, beautiful angel into a corrupted, demonic, vile demon. That's what pride did to the devil. It turned him from this high-ranking angel into a vile demon that harms people and where he fell from a great condition. When you look in the Bible, pride is what caused, in the Old Testament, King Saul to basically turn in from who he was originally into this person who lost all mental stability and became really just a, a crazy individual and lost his role and opportunity as a leader. And when you look in the Word of God, you'll notice the root cause of many in the Bible who end up not finishing well was pride. Many people who did not finish well, who ended up failing, a lot of times the root of that was pride. When they started to get proud, it led towards a pathway of downfall. And pride will cause us to do things that behave wrongly because really what pride does as one of its symptoms is it makes us want to upkeep an image outwardly and whenever i find myself wherever you find yourself kind of behaving in a way where you're trying to uphold some kind of an image before other people whether you're consciously doing or you just kind of catch yourself unconsciously doing it whatever pride causes us to do that to behave wrongly because we just want to keep up some image in front of other people where humility the opposite of that will always opt to do what's right instead of maintaining the image, instead of trying to impress people around us. Pride always thinks that it's right. Pride is stubborn. It's not willing to listen to other people. It doesn't want to yield to other people. Pride becomes pushy and forceful. Pride makes people start to act like a bully. It's what they want, and they're going to push till they get their way. Pride always wants to be admired, 
It always wants people to be impressed with us, to take notice of us, to make sure that people you know, are admiring things about us. It draws attention to itself. Pride always also acts like it's very capable and it never needs help. And one of the indications and symptoms of pride is, is struggling with receiving help from other people or struggling with taking input or having a teachable attitude and listening to other people. I can figure it out myself. I got this. I don't need your help. I don't need your advice. That's indication of pride going on inside of us. And pride makes a person feel they're very entitled and they start abusing their rights and so forth. And that's why we want to seek to rid ourselves from pride and seek humility because, again, it's humility that's going to keep us in a healthy place and it's going to keep us safe from personal ruin because if you think of humility it does the exact opposite humility knows sometimes i am wrong and, and, and when you can admit at times you are wrong and someone else is right and you're willing to listen to another or maybe yield to someone else that's a good indication humility is at work humility also causes us to want to help other people get what they desire it kind of brings a servant-hearted attitude humility isn't concerned about trying to impress people Humility just says, I am who I am, and I'm going to live out my life, and my goal isn't to try and get people to be focused on me, or to get people to admire me, or be impressed by me. You just live out your life, and you're content with who you are. And it really causes people as well, another symptom of humility, to know their limits in the same way that pride never wants to receive help and acts like it doesn't need help. Humility is the exact opposite. Humility is the ability to have a teachable attitude to say, I don't know everything about everything. Sometimes I could use some advice. Sometimes I need some counsel. And it gives you an attitude where you're willing to listen to other people or to let people help you. And humility also, is, again, kind of brings that servant-hearted attitude. Notice the next verses I put in your notes there. These two, I think, kind of go together. That's why I Put them next to each other. Proverbs 11, 2, it says this. When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. And then Proverbs 29, 23 says this. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Now notice looking at those two verses together. What's the result of pride? He says it causes us to do shameful things. It causes us to behave in shameful ways, and a man's pride will bring him low. Now, what's the opposite? If you look at the end of both of those verses, with the humble is both wisdom and retaining honor. So as we seek to live humbly, it brings wisdom into our life. It helps us to, to maintain an honorable life toward people and keeps us from ruin. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a great uh, preacher in the days of old, he said this, Nothing sets a person far out of the devil's reach as humility does. I mean, I really like that because I don't know about you, but I feel like that one thing I know is true is that as soon as I turned away from living my own selfish, sinful life and living according to the devil's will and I started following Jesus, I found out very clearly now there is an enemy of my soul that is always trying to trip me up and take me down and tempt me and distract me and destroy me. And anything I can do to put distance between me and the devil from dragging me down or making me make mistakes or tripping me up, anything I can do to separate and get myself out of his reach is a good thing. And so I love that quote, nothing sets a person so far out of the devil's reach as humility does. As we keep ourselves humble and we walk in humility, 
we keep ourselves further from the grasp of the devil tripping us up and getting a hold of our lives. Look at these next two verses in your notes there, James 4.10, 1 Peter 5.6. Can somebody read those two and notice how they kind of have the same concepts to them? Can somebody read those two out loud? James 4.10, 1 Peter 5.6. I got James. <coughs> Humble yourselves into the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And am I reading? First yeah, read 1 Peter 5.6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Right. Notice how those two verses kind of convey the same concept. What do you sense God's trying to say to us there in, in your own words? Anybody have any thoughts? That if you're humble, you'll be rewarded in a sense. Okay, very good. If you're humble, you'll be rewarded. Anybody else have any thought towards that? Uh, if you think yourself less, um, that allows you to think more of God. Yeah, absolutely. If we thinking less of ourselves is going to allow us more to, to focus upon God and his greatness. And again, the, 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 the heart you can tell that God's trying to convey here, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. The idea almost sounds like that when we're being proud, it's almost as if, you know, the offense to God, like we're acting like I'm so important. And you can almost imagine here's God, right? I mean, here's God and here he's, look, he's looking at me acting like in some degree I'm important. And imagine being God and seeing me as this feeble, weak little human being acting like I'm important and God thinking, are, are you kidding me? <laughs> you think you're important? <laughs> do, do you really think you're, in comparison to me, you really think that you're that important on the earth there? And, and he says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. It's almost like maybe when we start to do that, it's like God's trying to humble us a little bit and, and we're resisting that by trying to act like we're so cool or we're so proud by some way that we're, you know, letting pride rule our heart. And he says, but if we humble ourselves in the Lord's sight and under his mighty hand, he says in both these verses, he'll lift you up in due time. Now, what does that convey? Does God want to hold me down in life? Does he? No. No, right? God doesn't want to hold you back. Sometimes we have this wrong idea. Oh, man, I feel like God's always trying to knock me down. He's always trying to hold me down. When the reality is, is I may be holding myself down. I may be knocking myself down, and maybe the one that's doing that is me because of my own pride, right? Because what did we study earlier? Before destruction is what? The fall. The, the fall of pride, right? That, that pride leads to destruction. So sometimes maybe the reason I'm getting held down is my own pride in my life God wants to lift me up. This is what he's saying here. And what he's telling us is when we humble ourselves under God's authority in our life and we have a right attitude of humility, he says, God will lift you up in due time. Notice that key word there, in due time. And so the idea there to me is that God wants to lift me up, but the way up is down. Is as I become less and lower and keep a right, humble perspective, that in a proper way and in the proper time, when I'm ready, here's the key, guys, when I'm ready to handle it, then God can start to lift me up. But if I'm not ready to handle it and I'm going to just get more proud or arrogant and, and, and it's going to destroy me, God's not going to lift me up so that I can fall flat on my face because I'm not ready to handle something yet. So he says here that when we humble ourselves, God will lift you up in due time. God wants to build you up. God wants to raise us up and bring us into better things and greater things. But the key is God also loves us enough that he wants to make sure that we're ready to handle it. So don't get discouraged at times if, you know, maybe something's seeming slow or, man, why hasn't the Lord done this yet? Or why isn't he lifting me up in that way? Maybe some of that is maybe God's protecting me or protecting you because he says, you're not ready to handle that yet. 
and I don't want you to destroy yourself. And so I'll lift you up in due time. And God says, you focus instead on humility and let me lift you up in due time. I put a quote in there from Martin Luther that kind of alludes to this. Martin Luther said there, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, God can make something out of us. So again, as, as I have that humility, God can make something out of my life. You know, there's another place, 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6, where you see kind of this repeated refrain again, and God repeats things for emphasis. Let me read those next two verses, 1 Peter 5, 5 and James 4, 6. He says, likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders, be submissive and respectful towards those older. And then he says this, yes, all of you be submissive towards one another and be clothed with humility. Now notice this phrase, the end of 1 Peter 5, 5. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Then James 4, 6 says the exact same thing. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now let me ask a question. Why do you think God would repeat himself in the word of God? To emphasize, good, you got the nail right on the head there. To emphasize, it's not like, think about it, it's not like God, when he was putting together the word of God, went, I just can't think of anything else to say to these people. I just, I'm kind of, I'm tapped out. I mean, the Bible's big now, like I just don't, that's right, God knows everything. God could make the word of God be 10 times longer than what it really is. So when we find something in the word of God that's repeated, that should be blink, blink, flashing lights. God is repeating himself here. What Josh is saying, emphasis, don't miss this, really important. And look at this phrase, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's an important spiritual truth repeated for purposeful emphasis. And what it teaches us is that we can, to some degree, determine how God will relate to us. God resists the proud, God gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. The way I see it is this way. If it's a visual analogy, if you can look at me here, it's almost as if, again, remember he said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. I picture that when my attitude is proud, it's like God puts his hand on my forehead. And if you ever seen one of those old cartoons back in the day where somebody's running as hard as they can, you know, full speed and they're creating a dust cloud, you know, be like if somebody like, you know, super, super strong bodybuilder put their hand on the head of like a two-year-old who's like, you know, trying to run at them as hard as they can. And they're just kind of going like this, doesn't even require any strength. And that two-year-old is struggling as hard as they can. But that guy is so strong, he just puts his, his hand on that two-year-old's forehead and he just resists them. He's not going forward. In fact, he's not going anywhere. He, he's, not, he's not getting anywhere at all. And the Bible says that God resists the proud. So when I'm proud... What I do is force God to relate to me in a way where God's not only not letting me progress, he's actually just almost kind of holding me right where I'm at. And God's saying, I'm actually not going to not let you progress. I'm actually going to resist what you're doing because you're going down a wrong path. And when we go down a wrong path, God loves us too much to let us go down a wrong path. So God not only doesn't let us progress, sometimes God will actually resist what we're doing because he says, your heart is proud right now, and I don't want you to destroy yourself. I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to ruin yourself. So God will resist me when I'm being proud. Now he says the next verse, but next part of the verse, but God gives grace to the humble. That's the total opposite. It's almost like when I'm proud, God goes like this, puts his hand on my forehead. 
But then when my heart finally becomes humble, God turns his hand this way. And he says, now I'm willing to give you a hand. Now I'm willing to extend grace to you. I'm actually, I want to help you now. I want to, lead, I want to bring you forward. I want to give you everything you need. And by simply becoming humble in spirit, then God gives us lots of grace. And I don't know about you. I need lots of grace in my life. <laughs> I want lots of grace in my life. So I want to be humble before the Lord so I can experience his grace. I don't want God resisting me. I don't want God working in opposition to me. I want God helping me and giving me grace and lending me a hand. And I'll tell you guys, that phrase there, my encouragement, some phrases in the word of God are worthy of memorization. If there is one, that's one right there, especially for us as men. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To remember that and let it govern the way that you live, really, really helpful. Proverbs eighteen twelve says, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty and before honor before honor comes first is humility so as we journey down the road of humility that's the way to head towards honor proverbs 22 4 says by humility and fear of the lord are riches and honor and life so as we said earlier god rewards humility so what does humility look like if we were to see what humility looks like in action Okay, we understand the importance of humility. What does it actually look like when it's lived out? Well, of course, the greatest display of humility is in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And as I've said before, we worship Jesus as God. We follow Jesus as man. Jesus was both God and man simultaneously. He was God who took a second nature and became man and dwelt among us and lived among us. And then ultimately, of course, provided salvation for us. So we worship Jesus because he's God. And we follow Jesus as man because he's the perfect man. Well, what did Jesus do as the perfect representation of man? He pursued and maintained humility. Look with me, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Just want to again acquaint you with this passage because it's a great indication of that reality. It's in your notes there, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let me just read it and listen to what the Bible's saying to us. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset... As Christ Jesus. So the idea is think like Jesus thought. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that's what he says, verse 6 Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. So Jesus, the most important man ever to live, demonstrated the value and the importance of living humbly in the way that he operated among us. And here's a perfect illustration of God's promise. If we humble ourselves in the sight of God, he will what? Lift us up, right? It speaks of Jesus' humility. And then look at verse 9 as it goes on. After Jesus humbled himself as a man, therefore God the Father exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God lifted up Jesus to that exalted place, and that's the mindset that we're to have. As we humble ourselves, before God, before others, live as a servant, God's able to lift us up in a healthy and an appropriate way. And again, humility is always going to bring that servanthood 
lifestyle. That's why I put Jesus' words himself in Matthew 20, 26 there. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him become your servant. And I think the greatest illustration of that very reality, and it's the last lengthy section I put in your notes there because this passage, maybe you've seen it before, read it before, but I just want to read through it together before we conclude. This to me is a great picture of what humility looks like displayed in action. What does it look like to be humble? Again, keep in mind here with me this whole thought, guys, as we read John 13 before we conclude. This whole idea that Jesus is who? Who's Jesus on earth? He's God, right? So I, I just I want, I want you to really keep that in your mind quick as we read this. Jesus is God, right? So God is on the earth living as a man in a human body just like you and I on this earth. Watch how Jesus as God behaves in his example for mankind because this is our lesson and that's the whole thing he points out. Follow along with me, John 13. Let, let's just read through this together quickly before we conclude. It says, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, that is, he knew he was about to be crucified and die and then raise again and go back to heaven to God the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going to God. Now look at verse four. What does he do? He rose up from supper, laid aside his garments, that is his outer cloak. And he took a towel and he girded himself. Verse five says, after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with a the towel in which he was girded. So in that culture, people didn't walk around right in Sanooks and Nikes and clothes shoes that we wear today. Typically, people wore open-shoed sandals, right? They wore sandals. And when you walk through the Mideastern deserts of the Palestine area there, it was dusty and dirty, right? So they didn't also have what we have today, which is nice modern plumbing. So when you had your refuse from your house in any form or fashion, you opened the back curtain of your little, you know, maybe small structure you lived in and, and you tossed it right back out in the alley. So the point I'm trying to give to you here is you don't have modern roads and nice plumbing and hygienic conditions. You have dirty, filthy roads. There's gross things outside. There's dirt and dust. And you're walking around in, in like flip-flops, let's say. In that, right? And, and so guess what happens to your feet in the lower area of your legs? They get pretty gross right because you're sweating and i don't know if you've ever been outside when you're sweating a real lot and maybe if you're working or doing something and when you're sweating then the dirt like sticks to you right the dirt and dust so that's what would happen to people's feet it was hot they were sweaty dirt and filth and nasty things are getting stuck to their feet so it was very culturally common as a practice that when you entered into a home somebody especially if they had servants would wash your feet it was hygienic and clean before you came into somebody's home so you didn't track it in. It also was kind of refreshing. It felt good. You know, somebody would put some cold water on your feet and typically the lowest servant in a household staff had that job. And you can imagine why. Pretty gross, right? <laughs> to have to wash somebody's filthy, nasty, stinky feet. And notice in this story, they come in to eat the Passover dinner together 
And so I want you to picture this. They're all sitting down. Jesus and the disciples are there. And no doubt, follow with me. Here's what starts to go on in the scene here. The disciples, Peter, James, John, they start looking around and are thinking, man, what kind of place is this? This guy gives us the upper room to have the Passover. And where's his servant, man? Our feet are gross. This is disgusting. It smells in this room. I mean, you've got at least 12, if not 13 guys in that room. They're thinking, dude, it stinks in here. Nobody's washed our feet. Where is the servant? This is horrible. What kind of play? Why did this guy invite us here? He doesn't even have a servant. We're with Jesus. Why is nobody washing the master's feet and washing our feet? And so they're all looking around at something that needs to be done. But none of them have enough what? Humility to get up and start doing it. They're all thinking, I don't wash feet. I hang out with Jesus. I'm one of the 12, man. <laughs> I, I hang out with the master. Other people need to wash our feet. I'm, I'm with the king of kings. I'm with So nobody's washing feet, right? They see what needs to be done, but nobody's humble enough or willing to humble themselves to do that lower thing, to do the humble thing. They're just, they see the problem, but they don't want to solve the problem. And then what happens? Jesus gets up quietly after dinner because nobody else is doing it. And the king of kings, the master, their Lord, the greatest of all, God, the most important one out of all of them, the most important person that exists, Jesus, God, living as man, he gets up, he puts a towel on his waist. He gets a bucket of water and he comes up and he starts quietly washing their feet. Can you imagine how awkward it must have felt in that room as they're realizing well, this is really awkward that here's God washing filthy human feet because nobody else was humble enough to do it. And Jesus doesn't announce himself. He doesn't say, watch this, guys. Let me show you servanthood. Let me show you. He just humbly gets up and he just starts washing their feet in this humble act. And look with me back in our passage again here. So here he's washing their feet. That had to be very awkward. What a display of humility. And look at verse six. Are you surprised by this? He comes to Simon Peter. And what was Peter always known for doing? Talking out loud, putting his foot in his mouth. Peter always said something when he felt like he had to say something. So Peter speaks up here and he breaks the silence. Look at verse six. He says to Jesus, Lord, are you washing my feet? <laughs> This is something really wrong with this. You're washing my feet. Jesus says, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but you'll know after this. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. In other words, Lord, stop doing that. Again, Peter here is trying to make the situation better, but he's really just making it worse, demanding and telling Jesus what to do. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, then, okay, don't wash my feet. Wash my hands, my head. Give me a whole bath. I mean, Peter's just, he's just spiraling downward here. You know, Jesus is trying to teach us a principle and he's saying, Lord, okay, then just give me a whole bath. Don't stop there. And Jesus says, verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew it would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Now, just quickly before we go past that, what Jesus is saying there in a spiritual analogy is, look, you're clean as a person. You don't need a full bath every time you get a little corrupted. But in the same way, when they would get a shower outside in an outside bathhouse or wash maybe in a river or a lake, as they would walk back home, the rest of them would be clean. But as they would walk through the dirty streets, the only thing that would get dirt on it was their feet. And so they would need to just wash their feet again before they went back into their house. Does that make sense? 
So what Jesus is saying, in essence, from a spiritual perspective is, listen, if I've made you clean spiritually by forgiving all your sin, you don't need to re-get saved and have your soul cleansed every time you fail. But what is going to happen is you walk through this earth, you're going to get your feet dirty once in a while. Because you're going to walk through a filthy earth, and once in a while you're going to pick up some crud in your life. And Jesus is saying, so once in a while... You don't need a whole bath. You don't need to get saved and cleansed and forgiven. Once you're saved and forgiven, you're forgiven completely. But when you get a little crud on your feet and you've walked in a filthy path, Jesus says, we need to get those feet washed up a little bit again. And, and so Jesus is kind of putting this idea to Peter, but then he wants to drive the point home. Now that Peter's distracted him, he comes back to what he wants to talk about. Look as the passage concludes. It says, once he washed their feet, verse 12, he took off their gar his garments, he sat down again, and then Jesus goes to speaking to them in verse 12. He says, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you, look at this key word, verse 15, given you, what does he say? An example that you should do as I've done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you do these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, excuse me, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus says, why did I do this? Because I'm about to leave and I'm about to go back to heaven. I came from heaven. I was at the right hand of my father in glory. I know that I am king of kings and lord of lords. I'm secure with who I am. And so I was able to wash your feet and to be humble. I didn't need to try and impress you or make myself feel special or important. I was willing to be humble and be a servant when no one else would be humble and be a servant. And so Jesus is saying, I'm asking as my example down there on earth, if you're going to call yourself my followers and Christians, and if you want to be the best man to reflect me, I've given you an example. Jesus is saying, do the same. Do these same kind of things. Be a humble servant. Be someone who's willing to take that humble path of servanthood on your team when nobody else will do the humble servant thing. Be in your household, the person who will do the humble servant thing when nobody else will do the humble servant thing. And he says, notice he says, and if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Not if you know them, but if you do them. It's when you put these things into practice that that's when the blessing comes to know that you did what was humble and God honored that. See, the root of a plant is always what determines what springs forth as its fruit. And in the same way that's true, as spring comes now and things start to sprout outside, you can tell what kind of plant something is by you see what blossoms or fruit that comes, but that's determined upon the roots that are below the soil. And so here's the real key, guys. We have to become, as men, rooted in Jesus. Because if we're rooted in a relationship with Jesus guess what will blossom forth from our life? We'll be like who? Like Jesus, right? But you gotta be rooted in Jesus. That's why Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, that last verse in your notes, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. The only autobiographical statement Jesus made about himself was that. Think of all the things Jesus could have said about himself that were true, right? He could have talked about his holiness, his power, his authority. I mean, lots of things he could have said that were true of himself. The only thing Jesus said about himself is right there. He wanted to say about himself, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And he says, come to me 
take my yoke upon your life. And he says, learn from me. And what's the main thing he wants me to learn from him, Tony? As a man, be gentle and be humble. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't be you know, somebody who's cruel and you know, rude and harsh with people. Be somebody who is humble, somebody who's gentle, who understands who you are. And you know, may the Lord teach us as men to learn the path of humility. Something very, very beautiful because that will make us a lot more like the perfect man, which was Jesus, who his life represented humility. And that's what he wants to produce in us as we keep our lives rooted in him. One of you guys close us in prayer and we'll wrap up. Go for it. I got you. Go for it. I'm in this prayer. Dear God, 